0: The stories that we write of our lives with every moment that we experience, every small joy, every difficult event, every exhilarating wonder, are slowly filling up the pages of a sand-filled hourglass during our short time living as human beings in a curious thing called life. Sometimes, the things that challenge us most on our voyage of uncharted waters Is the unknown? What fears lie ahead? Is there something better beyond the horizon? These are questions that often have answers revealed when we are most exposed and most willing to take a leap into newness, a different direction, a new way to listen and to embrace the unfamiliar. During today's episode, we'll bring up some of those uncomfortable feelings, the ones where we confront these things in the world that we don't understand, the feelings of emptiness from loss and grief of things we've had to let go of, and of course, the fear and excitement we sometimes experience in learning this new truth in ourselves, one that we're beginning to embrace or have yet to encounter. Looking back on the time I've spent here living in the West, in Los Angeles, the most memorable times I think about always involve being vulnerable, taking a little risk, and being open to writing a new scene in my story. Sometimes when you encounter someone that is also open to what the world may bring, you make a fast connection. One of those people is a woman I met who became an instant friend. Philippa Sklar, living much of her life in South Africa, was always drawn to these stories. Whether it was her passionate voice to fight for others who didn't have one during the time of apartheid, or searching for truth in her own way of love and self-worth, it even led her down the path of experimenting with the beauty of food and its power to unlock kindness. As a survivor of abuse and champion for creativity from it. What Philippa experiences in her life is often turned into action. She's written three books, with a few cast of characters you may recognize when you listen to our talk today. So, what to do with those fears and new things on the horizon? I'm not sure. But don't you want to find out? It's a new voyage, much like this episode, Just in conversation with my friend, Philippa. (laughs) Hi, Philippa.
1: (laughs) Hi, Justin, how are
0: you? (laughs) Uh, um so we spent i hope you have a while to talk i hope you're not having to go to something or do something after this.
1: i've gone until next year april when we get COVID. okay <laughs> <laughs>
0: well it's good to see you lovely to see you too it's been a long time since we've chatted yeah. Um, yeah. and that was actually the reason that i decided to create this podcast um because um during this year in this pandemic i've Um, lost some relationships and friendships and connections and just um, you know different things that we've all experienced loss I think Um, and some one way or the other and I felt I have felt increasingly more isolated and um, I mean physically literally but also just kind of cut off and I don't I don't think we've done it on purpose I think a lot of us don't know how to cope with this kind of you know this kind of environment that we're in The realization of that truth has a lot of grief attached to it. So I was like, "Who do, who have I not I not connected with in a while?" And <gasps> Philippa was one of them.
1: Oh, I'm so glad you did. Yeah. You know, I must tell you something about this period and about reconnecting. You said something a few minutes ago about truth mm. that you had to come to terms with the truth of who what these friendships were about. You said something like that. Yeah.
0: There's
1: an astonishing thing about truth is that with truth comes acceptance because you can't fight or argue the truth. Um, And when you're not fighting or arguing it, it doesn't bring up any feelings of any negative feelings because that would just be insane. So it's almost a peaceful thing when you come to the truth about somebody or something, you gain a peacefulness from it. Because before, it's only, you know, with lies that you get this freneticism. This whole cons- this whole um, period of Trump and all this madness and insanity, you can always relate it to your life, what's going on in the macro stage, in the micro. You know, they're always reflecting and mirroring each other. So you look at somebody like Trump in this administration with all this massive noise and craziness and insanity, because that's what lies require. Truth requires, truth never needs a defense, it's always gentle, it always emerges, you never need to fight the truth, it's just there, it's peaceful and quiet and calm. So when you, I know that when I think about it in my own life, anything that is truthful doesn't require any, it's a neutral thing, it doesn't require any animosity, resentment or anything, it just is. So, with friendships, when they fall apart and they don't survive, there's something um, wonderful about that, that when people disqualify themselves on their own, um, without all the drama that needs to go with it, it's just a gentle letting go of these people that you didn't need them. You know, it was also the lie maybe you were telling yourself before that, oh, you needed that person and you needed to go there and you needed this to fall... To make your life feel fulfilled but how truthful can that really be that when it disappears it's not like your life left you you know something more something bigger grows in place of it
0: speaking of truth i've spent found that, found that to be true actually you're forced to be in a situation where um you don't have those things to escape to or to yeah. you know or to yeah. um distract yourself with so mm-hmm. you're kind of left alone with your literal
1: with so yourself.
0: With yourself.
1: Did you ever read Victor Frankl's book Man's Search for Meaning? No. Okay, you must read it. It's okay. a little book. Victor, have you heard of Victor Frankl? No. Tell us. He was one of the world's best psychiatrists and he was in Auschwitz mm. and he wrote the book just after Auschwitz and he became a psychiatrist because of it. And the message of the book is that in every... In every amount of pain we get, there's always a gift. And if he could find that gift in Auschwitz, we can find it in our everyday lives. Like don't you, haven't you noticed that there are things that happened in your life that you were convinced were the worst things that ever happened? And then years later, maybe you realize it was actually the best thing that happened.
0: I think what I've discovered in, in this time of doing, of doing that, and I think I'm still on that, on that journey... Is getting past the fear of what that true self is that's going to be coming to coming to the table or on the other side of that, so I'm looking forward to forty <laughs> actually because you know I know that things will be completely different by that point
1: Well, because you're different yeah, you know we all think we need to know everything you know all fears are about all fears live in the past and the future. There are no fears in this moment. And this moment is all we ever know for sure. What, I mean, when you think about it, what fear do you have in this very moment, right now? No, There's, nobody ever has a fear in this moment. We're always in fear of what may happen, what will happen, what should happen, could happen, what did happen. And most, and you know that 80% of what we fear never ever comes, never ever happens anyway. Right. Um, and we get overwhelmed with fears because we project them into the future and there's nothing we can do about them now because they're only going to happen, we think in the future. So we feel helpless and powerless. You know what? We're having this conversation for a reason. Do you know Course in Miracles?
0: Yes. You and I, I remember a conversation you and I had about Course in Miracles. And I don't know if you remember this, but I I vividly remember, um, you and i were in your car and i don't remember what for it was after some event or something yeah and uh it was raining it never rains in la (laughs) (laughs) it was raining and i mean like cats and dogs torrential rain pour like it was hard you could hear it on the roof of the car and uh you and i decided to just sit in the car we had had some in-depth conversation uh and Um, Oh, I think you were dropping me off at a train stop or something. Okay. That's what it was. And um, after an event and we were just chatting in the car and remember you said, let's just sit here for a minute in the rain and talk. Mm -hmm. And so we pulled over and then we were talking about um, spirituality and faith and all these things. And then you brought up the course of miracles and and we had a long talk about that. And I remember my memory of course of miracles is I read, um, I read a return to love by Marianne Williamson uh-huh. and she talks about the course of miracles or a course in miracles. Um, and then you kind of brought it up again. Um, but I don't, I don't fully remember and I know, I know it comes up a lot in, I hear it a lot in the podcast that I'd to. So tell me, tell me a little bit, give me a, a little brief,
1: Okay, so, you know, we're only ever ready when we're ready. And what often happens is that somebody will tell you to read a book and you don't read it for years and one day you'll mm. pick it up years later and think, why the hell didn't I pick up that book? Yeah. And I now, when somebody tells me to read a book, I know I need to read it because, you know, I don't want to, I think I'm going to miss out otherwise, <laughs> you know, I think I need to get it. You're talking about fears. Um which is what The Course in Miracles is. It's, I've been doing it every single day for the last five years. I never, ever get out of bed in the morning without doing the lesson for the day because there's a lesson for every day of the year. And this
0: is coming course. back to me now. Yes, okay. There's a lesson yeah. every day. Yeah.
1: Yeah. But what you're, what you're reading isn't what you think it means. It uses language with traditional concepts, but in a totally irreligious way. It has nothing to do with religion. Just to give you an idea, I um I rewrote these Bible stories based on the teachings of a Course in Miracles. You know, did you did you read Eckhart Tolle, um, A New Earth?
0: Yes, I love it.
1: Okay, so he bases all his work on a Course in Miracles. It's right, exactly the- I
0: remember him mentioning it. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, truth and love. That's what it's about.
0: I think a I think before a year from now, if you said, "Oh, you have to read through these things," I'm like, "Oh, I can't read. I'm not a reader," or yeah. books that you bring up. So I wouldn't be able to be in this place to even accept the idea of making a reading list, unless I was in this place to, kind of being torn down enough to want to introduce reading in such a profound way. And I know that you're a reader for sure because you um you write books. <laughs> Um, but can can you tell me? Can you tell me what I'm always fascinated to hear for people that are book people, like what was your encounter? Like, do you did you have a memory as a kid? Were you all just consuming all these books, or what was what's your book Not, life?
1: Okay. okay, so firstly, you know, even to, the fact that I've had three books published is astonishing because I've never learned how to write. I just have a passion for writing, but I've never learned how. Um, my mother was an intellectual and a Shakespearean actress, and her, she she would get my my older sister to read everything from Dostoevsky to Graham Greene to I mean, uh, uh, Solzhenitsyn, I mean, you name it; they were reading all the classics. I read nothing. I've only read Mills and Boone, which is a British, um, it's a British series of romance novels and they were specific formulas and that's what i read mills and boone romance novels mm-hmm. that was the, the sum total of what <laughs> i read yeah <laughs> um i started reading when i started searching i was started reading um you know roadless traveled and um gary Zukov's seat of the soul and then like, you know Ikatoli and. Um, I mean, all those, I read every single self-help book that was ever published because I was so desperate mm. for a meaning to my life. Um, and then during the pandemic, I'm. well, I'm, I also, I love crime novels.
0: I was going to say, what, what is it about crime novels? Because when I was, when I decided to get into the world of reading, yeah. it's like the number one genre is crime novels. I looked yeah. up on I had an Amazon Kindle uh, account and it was like crime novel, crime novel, crime novel, yeah. like all of them. Even and in fact, do you know who Laura Lippman is? No. She's a a I guess a famous crime novelist. I I randomly read an article by Laura Lippman. It was about losing friends. Oh. Huh. And that kind of drew me in. And she was, you know, she was experiencing her mid to late uh, middle aged life as a woman, and mm-hmm. then she just started to she started to see herself becoming a bad friend or doing things that contributed to losing friendships. And the whole article is about that. And it really struck me, and so I tweeted it out, and just recently I did a search, because uh, what was that article about? And I really loved her writing style. So I looked her up, I was like, oh, I want to read more of this stuff. And it turns out she was a, you know, she was just a crime novelist.
1: No, you, you know, you're saying, why do so? Why are crime novel, uh, novels the most popular? Yeah. It's the same thing with police shows, and crime, you know, anything to do with right. crime, that's what people are fascinated by. Right. I discovered Lee Child during the pandemic, and I think he wrote about 20 or 30 books. I read all of them. I became absolutely obsessed. you know Jack Reacher? Yes. Okay, so that's Lee Child. I was thinking, that's who we need here in America is a Jack Reacher. And I read them. All. <laughs> I just gobbled them all up. And then I went through Linda Leplant. I went through the Anne Travis novels. I just went crazy with crime novels.
0: Okay, so you're, you're reading self-help books. Then you went into. No, cra- no, not anymore. No, I
1: don't read. But, you, but you
0: were. You were reading. Started, you were. I started. Yeah. You started that way, reading to get some insight into your life. And then you started discovering crime novels. Yeah. Okay. So w- where did you go from there?
1: I'm still with them.
0: <laughs> You're still there. Okay. I will tell you that I en- really heavily enjoy real crime TV shows. So do I. Yeah. So like Unsolved Mysteries. Did you see yeah, the new one? It
1: no
0: the new one that's on netflix
1: no which one
0: unsolved mysteries
1: no i haven't seen oh my it. gosh
0: philippa you've you'd love it
1: okay have you watched in the line of duty it's british it's the best
0: crime oh no
1: you will ever see in your life
0: okay all right i'm up for it yeah. um how do you think that you you said you've always loved to write when did you discover that you have this passion of writing in you
1: i've been you know i found um I used to write, keep diaries from the time I was 10, 11, 12, and I found them all. I was always writing. Um, And then I had this burning desire to write a recipe book, which was my first book on men and food. Um, And I have a cast of characters in the front of the book where I named each of the men in my life after ingredients, and I give reasons why, and there's stories about them in the book. So that was my first book. Um, And then I... Co-wrote these two books with my ex-therapist, who's now my best friend, on domestic violence and on affairs. Um, and Sue, who lives in South Africa, um, we write to each other every single day. Wow! Yeah,
0: a true pen pal. Yeah. So Sue is your former therapist. She yes. Okay, that's great. I do. Yeah. I think I do remember that story. How you co-wrote this yeah. with her? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so for those, I know that you're from South Africa. Um, And I think it'd be interesting to hear your story there. For those of us that have never been or don't know even, what was your childhood like? What was it like growing up there? And when did you you move out here?
1: Well, it's very different to here. We had a very privileged upbringing in South Africa. I grew up during apartheid. Mm. Um, I came from a political family. My father was the mayor of Johannesburg during the 76 riots. And he was the first mayor that broke apartheid in the mayoral chamber. Up until then, black people were not even allowed anywhere near the mayoral chamber to any functions or anything. And my father's theme was meet the people. So do you know Bishop Desmond Tutu? Of course. Okay, so Tutu phoned my father up and he said, Mr. Mayor, you say your theme is meet the people. Do you mean all the people? And my father said, come for lunch. And they became great friends. Um, so they broke apartheid to the mayoral chamber. And my mother was a member of the black sash which was an organization of women and it was the only group of people that the nationalist party who were the apartheid regime feared and they were only allowed to um, they could only demonstrate one person at a time so whenever they would demonstrate or protest against something diabolical that the government had done to blacks my mother would go with these group of women and they would stand one person at a time at the side of a road with their big placards And the Nationalist Party, their supporters, would come by and throw black paint at them. Um, And we had our, you know, because my mother also used to monitor court trials because black people never had fair trials. So we grew up with our phones being tapped. Um, My mother was um, monitoring a trial, the famous Delmas treason trial, and the police tampered with her engine and driving home, it just crash it kind of like folded and she had it, it folded like a concertina it was a miracle that she got out alive but apart from that um, our family connection we also had it with Nelson Mandela and one of the things we wanted to expose was you know even though apartheid was abolished we wanted to do a thing in the maintenance courts where these women these black women would line up from 3 4 in the morning with their babies in the freezing cold in winter to get money from the garnishing orders that were taken from their husbands. There was no way for them to change their babies, no way for them to go to the bathroom. It was a nightmare. The court doors would open at eight o'clock. They would allow some women in, and the ones who got in, their money was stolen from the men who were working in the courts. So, the you know, South Africa was an incredibly corrupt, hostile um, place to to be exposed to a lot of it the average white person knew that there was you know knew of some of the atrocities not all of them because we had censorship and now of course it's just now the corruption there is absolutely crazy and the crime is appalling um they have the infrastructure is non-existent so their power outages On almost on a weekly basis, where there's no electricity, there's no water. Mm. Um, And now South Africa's a mess, sadly.
0: Wow, really? Yeah. And then you have, then we have what's happening in this country. Yep. And I've, you know, just today I was just, I was washing the dishes actually, um, which I hate doing, but it's actually a good um, way to stay present. It is. <laughs> and to really kind of get thoughts going actually. Um and I was just thinking about you know, today today we um officially cast our votes to get the electoral votes cast for yeah. for President Biden. Um and that doesn't what bothers me about that is that there are so many votes for Trump still.
1: Yeah.
0: And um I had to, I've been doing a lot of thinking about what does that mean, really, and the way that we talk to each other about defeating this person. If you look at news headlines, it's defeating and destroys, and this person, you know, all the little clickbait headlines are using this destructive language to try to just, um, you know, fire off these shells on either side, and it's just um, a battle that can't resolve. Um, I'm, I mean, as I've said, I'm the first one, I'm very guilty of throwing my own shells at the other side. I mean, I've, I've had my share of that, but I just don't know what the solution to that is because there's no, there is no winner in that scenario. I mean, it's just going to be back and forth and the pendulum will swing whichever way back and forth. And there's certainly times and moments where we, we have to destroy evil or we have to get rid of it or battle against it and i'm brought up with um during world war ii and the seeking out and extermination of people that were othered and i bring that up because last summer i went on a backpacking trip to europe for the first time and one of the things that i did is i toured the um, anne frank house in amsterdam have you been
1: no, and I've been to Hollywood. Can you believe I never went to Anne Frank's house?
0: That experience going through that house will stick with me forever. Really? It was, um, it was a very palpable feeling. Uh, and they do it in a way where um, they, they, the reason they have time slots is because it's so small. Mm. They can only let a handful of people in at a time to go through this ha- space. Yeah. And it's sort of a guided tour. You wear headphones and there's someone speaking to you as you go through each room. And so there's only like five or six people that are there with you because of the, it's so small mm-hmm. in there. But we started at the bottom and then we just kind of made our way up. And then when then the chilling part of that was the um, bookcase that was it was open that you could crawl through the the door was there and you walked through it. This bookcase is still there. Wow. I mean, it, it's sort of covered up so you can't touch it, but it's sure. kind of swung open. And then there's this door and you walk through it and you go up the staircase into where they, the general area where they slept and cooked food. And you go and you walk inside all the, all the bedrooms. And they've taken the furniture out. So it's just the room itself. And that's the way that Otto Frank wanted it. Um, he wanted it to be empty, but there's still things on the walls from when Anne was placing things there to look at. But I remember just standing there in that space and just feeling, can you imagine just being here while all of that was going on for two years? Yeah. Um, and it really was just a very introspective, but also grounding kind of experience. Um, and later that day I went and talked to a jewel, uh, like a guy that sold rings on the side, like a, vendor there and we had a chat for about half an hour about the whole thing and and the reason i say that whole story was to talk about othering and uh i'm just trying i i fail to understand what what will be the answer to othering in this particular country i mean there's 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 so much hurt and fear behind what either side is going to be saying fear of what may happen or what's going to happen and there's so many untruths to that
1: so you said about why should somebody have to lose for somebody to win Mm -hmm. so we're looking at what we've lived through decency always needs to win and indecency always needs to lose and i don't think there's a gray line there just like you know what happened in nazi germany they had to lose and be and completely disappear Well, until they arrived here with Trump. Yeah. But I really think that um, you can't pussyfoot around concepts like this, where you're talking about white supremacists marching through the streets. um, And you're talking about, you know, people who are, you know, Trump is one thing. The fact that he has all those people around him that enable him to do it, they're indecent. They're dishonest. That needs to. It, that has to lose. You can't. There's no other way around it. Yeah, decency always needs to win, and we do need to beat that, those concepts.
0: I totally agree with you, and and you know my my connection to Nazi Germany and World War II and the Anne Frank House was even more important to me because um, growing up, my grandfather owned a world war II museum really yes so he fought in the war and we've always heard stories about it and he um as you know as a kid it was the museum was kind of out back it was behind the house in a separate building and people from the public would come tour it and we brought our school classes there on field trips and it was just something that was always around um, unfortunately, um, I wish it was around as an adult. I mean, when you're a kid around that stuff, mm-hmm. you don't really, yeah, you know, you can't conceptualize it as much, mm-hmm. but I do remember it enough to, to know that it was always around us. You know, there were display cases of the helmets and the artillery and, um, clothing and things like that. There were interactive exhibits where you could hear the gunfire and recordings and there was this tremendously large um swastika flag on the wall and it was there to remind us of what we had defeated you know what we had gotten rid of so that was something that was as a as our in our childhood that was always a constant reminder like just over and over even with every field trip every tour and that's sort of where my grandfather hung out. That was like his space and he would go in the back office and there'd be music on. And that was what he felt was important is to educate the world about that with films yeah, and just really touching it. it and seeing the, mm. you know? Um, and so to see, to see that coming up again in this country, <laughs> um, I, I, you know, he died in um, years ago and I just wonder what he'd be thinking now. You know all that time, the what and what he fought in, and, and then trying to educate the world against that, and yeah. um and so then from taking that childhood and then going from years later to my, in my thirties, going to a, a a place that had these things are actually existing in the history of it, and then walking mm. through the Anne Frank house and touching these walls and yeah. you know in the place yeah. that it was, it was a truly, um.
1: It's moving. It's, it's... yeah. It's. It... Have you been to Have you been to Israel? No. Okay. So, however you felt in Anne's Frank in Anne Frank's house,
0: yeah,
1: you went to Yad Vashem. Um, it's probably the most in terms of the architecture of the buildings. It's one of the best, I think, in the world, and the museum itself is just remarkable. Um. And it's that, it's going to something like that, and even to Anne Frank's house, and living through what we're living through here. I think that a lot of what we've lived through the last four years, I may as well have been back in South Africa in the 70s and 80s with apartheid. You know, after, when apartheid was abolished, there was this group of Afrikaners who were called the RWVers. They were the most, they were fascists. And people were terrified that when the, when the apartheid regime would end, that these fascists would take over. Exactly the same that was happening here. And what actually happened was that there was this stupid little shootout on a freeway with five of their members, and they just disappeared into nothingness. And I think, you know, I don't know, maybe it's just part of magical thinking. I don't know. I think that, you know, all the stuff that's come out and been exposed—the ugly side of America—it was only able to get a breath because of Trump. Yes. And once he's gone, I actually think they'll go and crawl back under the rocks they've come from, because people are inherently kind and decent. I really do believe that. Um, this isn't who. This isn't who. Never mind who Americans are. This isn't who people are. Yeah. Um. And even you look at those, you know, his supporters. His supporters look exactly the same as the the same kind of people who support the Nationalist Party in South Africa. they say, you know, uneducated. Um, They look the same, talk the same, speak the same language, you know, the same. And they just disappeared. Um, I like to think that will happen here. And, yes, let them be losers. Let them lose. Let them lose the right to be heard. Um, You know, there's something about... If somebody accuses you of something and you know it isn't true, by defending yourself you're actually giving it validity mm. and making it important. And the thing is just to let it go. And that's how I feel we should treat all this insanity, um, you know, I, it's just not to give them a voice, not to respond, because by responding you just keep feeding it. Israel was able to find peace with Germany. Is that not remarkable? So you know what? We'll find our peace here with, with with Americans who believed in this lunatic.
0: Yeah, it's um, it's about long term solutions, yeah. isn't it? And, and and that's another thing that I think this culture we've we're in. Um, you know, I work in the realm of digital and social media and that kind of stuff. Mm. And there's this increasingly need for, for things to happen tomorrow or today. Mm. And the arguments that we're making for change have to have the end result be an over long period of time work.
1: But you know what I think as well? I think that if if there was a way of speaking and and reaching these people, I don't think it needs to be a long-term thing. Think of your own life for instance. If you have an issue that you want to change about yourself. Or some aspect of your life, you don't have to think about it, or talk about it, or massage it for months or years or whatever. If you have an understanding about what does work for you and what doesn't, in that understanding you can action it. You know, I went to an ashram in India. It was Osho's ashram, Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh, and he had a thing about he he was against Western psychology. Because he said people go to therapy, and for years and years and years, they'll talk about their problem, they'll talk about their problem. But he said that in one conversation, if you get the understanding, you can action whatever needs is necessary. And it's about how you can, how, how you can reach somebody or speak to them so that they can hear you. The ways that, that have happened up until now to speak to these people obviously hasn't worked. Well, then it's up to us to find a new way of speaking. Mm. So they will hear.
0: I used to be a pipe organist. Mm. And I had a private teacher who I uh, adore. She's amazing. And we have long conversations like this. And we talk about the world and the planet and the stars aligning and all sorts of things. Um, And one thing that she's really good at creating bridges and conversation. And one thing that she told me is, is a kind of a tip. Um, is use other people's language when you talk to them. Mm. And so if they if they have, you know, listen, first listen and hang out with them, if they use an expression like far out, then you use that to say, to, to describe something. Or if you know that they like to um, use color to, to describe something, you use color. To, so you have to do a lot of listening first yeah. to see how, how the other person communicates. Yeah. Then use some of their words. Even if it's the same language, there's a sub-language underneath how people communicate. And I find that fascinating. And I've, it is fascinating. I've definitely done that in my professional life, as well as just um, getting to make connections, like listening to how they speak and then trying to use their own language to bridge a gap or or make a bridge. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. And so now I wanted to talk about one of those ways that you can make a connection is with food and this is something mm. that you've told me before
1: um, food is like a drug, is the truth serum people relax when they're eating you know um, there's something quite marvelous about sitting down and sharing a meal with somebody we use it to celebrate to seduce to think about you know to inspire and I think that you know the, the, the center of a home is always the kitchen that's where things happen and I'd I'd had this idea to take, go and take Jewish food into the south where there's lots of anti-semitism and maybe even go with some with the Muslim Um, People who that you know who they would really Be intolerant towards and cook a meal for them in their home and let them get to know who we are and and talk about things that People would never normally talk to them about you know when people are eating good food all of a sudden they're open up, their defenses are down, and you can you can make so much headway that way. The way to America's heart should be through their stomach.
0: Oh, I think it is already. I think that that's a little bit of the problem, right? But I um, But good
1: food, not not yes, food that's right their, and also um,
0: prepared food. I think that's something that we're missing in American culture by a long yeah. a long shot is that we don't know how to cook food. We don't know how to prepare food for people. Is there an yeah. example that you can share uh, with us about where you did make connections through food or cooking? Can you think I'm of a... my husband. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, of course, of course.
1: Um, no, but I've done... I've, oh, my God, I've done... I've cooked for Mandela. I made him a dinner. Did you? T- can you marvelous. tell us a,
0: a story about that?
1: Um, well, I actually... I made a dinner for him. Um, and what after the dinner, he was such a marvelous man. He wanted to meet everybody in the kitchen, all the staff. Of course. And he posed pictures for them, with them. And then he moved into this one suburb in Johannesburg. And when he moved, um, I was very good friends with a man who was in charge of the opposition, the Democratic Party in, in the Johannesburg City Council. And so he asked me to bake him a cake to welcome him into the neighborhood, which I did. And then when I came to LA, my first client was Elizabeth Taylor. Really? I, yeah, I catered two of the Oscar dinners and her grandson's christening.
0: And this is someone that has no—you have no idea how to cook, but you—you. Uh, you
1: no, I don't chop like a You know, I don't have no knife skills. It's okay. All from just instinct.
0: Which is the best way to do it? I think. I mean, you're an artist.
1: You know what I discovered, Justin? That during you know how you've taken this time out to discover who you are yeah I, I did it for about 10 years when i went to live in the berkshires for eight months and i, I for 10 years i did i i re i i, I recreated my worldview because it was so screwed up um and what i found was that every single day i have to do something creative whether it's doing flowers whether it's cooking a meal whether it's writing whether it's rearranging furniture that's what speaks to my soul. Have to do something creative.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I, I'm the same way. Obviously, yeah. I, I kind of, yeah. I'm actually com- in complete shock that I'm still doing the same career that I am for the past six years. I usually yeah. get tired of something by now and move on. Um, mm. But yeah, you're right. I mean, that's why this podcast was born. I needed yeah. some other new thing to to. And I have no, you know, I've never done a podcast before or whatever, um, or a film or a whatever. Uh, and, a, and I love cooking, too. Well,
1: here's an idea. Why don't we pack a bag, you take your equipment, and we go to the South, and we start talking and cooking for people.
0: Oh, yeah. Let's Wouldn't do it.
1: Wouldn't that be an amazing experience? It would, yeah. And we go into their kitchens and use ingredients that they've got.
0: Yeah. I love it's that idea.
1: Here to seduce because you're seducing them into your yep, way into right. kindness. Maybe that's what it is. It's about seducing into so, kindness. Yeah,
0: yeah. I like that. That's your next book. <laughs> <laughs> um, so,
1: Listen, I'm busy getting through the Bible. I'm only on. Moses oh
0: right, <laughs> yeah. Look, we're going to talk about that in a second too. But um, wh- what I wanted to ask you too is, I talking about food. I love food. I mean, I love. I love cooking and I've had friends make fun of me for it. But I um I just find food is the best relationship you can have. It never lets you down. Yeah. You know, it's um and there's this just reward from it. The process yeah. of the smells it's you get from it. Grat-
1: it's instant gratification. Yeah.
0: Well, and but if you're doing a roast or something, it's not instant. I mean, you have to, it's that patience that you have to let it go or let it bake or let it sit, but it's the preparation behind it too. It's very, and also it's a very mindful practice. Yeah. You know, so the, I, um, just recently during the, I've done a lot of pandemic buying. Um, and one of the things I bought was a really, I've never had a really, really nice cutting board. So I, d- I just spent a bunch of money, and I bought a really nice cutting board because I was chopping things constantly on these really crappy uh, boards. So I bought a really nice teak wood cutting board so I could just chop things, and I got a really oh, nice knife. And just the 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 pleasure you get from hearing the sounds of the yes. chopping and yeah. the smells that come from it and the gliding of the knife into the yeah. – the garlic that you're chopping or the lettuce or the uh, vegetables or whatever. And then another thing I did is try to up the quality of the food I was doing. So I subscribed to this direct farm um, food delivery service. And so um, every two weeks I get this box fresh from the farm. The dirt is still all over all the vegetables. And it's just a cardboard box full of vegetables. And so I use that to cook with and I have never tasted, I, I've, I have found after getting this farm fresh food that I've actually never tasted vegetables before.
1: Really? Or
0: fruits. Because yeah. they're so, I remember um, I remember for sure the first time getting a, a, a bunch of heirloom tomatoes mm. from this farm um, box. And I was just curious to see how it tasted. So I just kind of cut off a little bit of the tomato and I just ate it and I was blown away. I was like, this is what a tomato tastes like. (laughs) I was for decades, I was trying to buy these red little things in the supermarkets or whatever that had no taste and this kind of bitter. Mm -hmm. I have never tasted a tomato like that. And so it just opened up all the possibilities for combining things and really actually just tasting the food and not covering it in all these you know, disguising and all these, um, seasonings or whatever. But so it got me excited about food again, you know? Um, so I'm, I cook a whole lot actually in my apartment because it's something I look forward to at the end of the day. I mean, I I made a a full roast last night in the Dutch oven.
1: How wonderful. So is there something else you've started during COVID? Yeah. So look how your life's being enriched in all these ways.
0: Yeah. You sound like my therapist now. (laughs) (laughs) She says the same thing. Yeah. Yeah, but it's That's um great. do you and I I did notice that you do sometimes find these great little discoveries for yourself in food. Like you just have this really exciting like I saw that you made a jam kind of by accident.
1: Oh, yeah.
0: <laughs> right? And so you're like, oh, I just found this amazing thing. Here's a jam that you can make and it's just so wonderful and it 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 brings out this joy in you as you're thinking about making it and doing it and, you know. So the do you think about or can you talk about what you th- what you think is finding that not just with people which is obvious but also I think you can you can find joy in cooking for yourself too just oh, the food you have
1: it. no idea every day i cook for myself yeah so right now i'm obsessed with making Piri peri baby ch- uh, cornish hens so in south africa we were influenced by there was a large portuguese community and Piri peri is spicy so you um you spatchcock the chickens and you season them with um, a whole lot of different, sp- I mean, I can tell you, they. I, I get South African spices from the South African store, there's one in Beverly Hills on at the German butcher shop, um, and you let it sit and then you roast them and you, you never tasted a tastier chicken in your life. And I've just come back from Toronto from visiting my sister and I became hooked on these uh, pick, pickled cucumbers, they're called Bubbies. And I discovered them, the best pickled cucumbers you've ever tasted. So I'm obsessed with those. Now I'm obsessed with marinating artichokes, grilled artichokes. Oh, yeah. Pepper. You know the ones from Trader Joe's, the frozen yes, ones? Yes, yes. Grill them in a very hot oven. Um, and then I put it in, I I marinate them in um, oil and salt and pepper and uh, what else did I put? Oh, and lemon juice. And they're marvelous in salads. So I keep on, you know, every day, every every few days, I'm discovering something new to get obsessed about. Of
0: course. But don't you think that food, for me, for me during this time, I've tried to do things that remind myself that I'm alive. Like, don't you think food reminds yourself that you're alive? Like it just, oh, like anything can be happening in the world. But if you cook something that you just love to eat and you have that moment where it's, Especially the first bite.
1: You wanna know something? Yeah. When I started you know, after I'd had this dreadful experience of being abused mm. and I had no self esteem, food was something that helped me get back my self esteem and learn to get back my self respect that I deserved because I would have gone to extraordinary lengths to cook meals for these dreadful men that I had in my life. And then I thought, you know what, I'm worth it. I'm gonna cook for me. So it was a way of putting value on me, that I deserved it, that I could sit and take the time to go and buy the ingredients, go wherever I needed to, to get that special thing that I couldn't get from a regular store, yeah. take the time to cook it, put it on beautiful dinner service. You know, normally I would think, oh, no, it's only for him or for them or for guests. No, no, no. I'm more important than anybody. It's for me now. Um, so that's what food did to me. It actually it was the most therapeutic, most amazing thing to rebuild my self-esteem.
0: I totally agree. I think everybody has their own personal food story. And if you haven't, then this is the time to create one. And then if you find things that you enjoy doing a lot, you can kind of put that in your library of, of things to kind of draw from.
1: You know, I have food for different moods. Yeah. If I'm in you know, if I'm if I'm depressed, I'll have something. If I'm feeling upbeat and energetic, I'll eat something else. It's like what what am I gonna wear wear today? Well, when we used to get dressed <laughs> those long far yeah. away days. You know what I would dress for a mood. Well now I cook for my moods.
0: So. Yes, same here. What's what has been your biggest adventure?
1: Myself. <laughs> Okay, discovering who I am and challenging myself to get rid of things that I couldn't stand about myself um, and learning. I'm, I have an insatiable curiosity for how the mind works and how the world works and how, people, how people's minds work. That's that's an adventure that never ends. Isn't Every that the truth? Every single day I learn something new.
0: Yeah, I must say um, in our time that we've known each other, you always tend to be um, in your truthfulness that you speak. You always have, you always tend to find some sort of adventure out of what you're doing or seeing. And you're, you take energy, you take that energy and you do something with it. And that, well, you
1: know, thank you. So with this whole thing, when you're asking me, you know what, what it is, my adventure, that's how I started writing these stories because it was an adventure of discovery you know you take you look at bible stories and they're they've been told for thousands and thousands of years one way and i love the challenge of finding another way of telling them that's current that is makes sense that is um based in facts Um, that that gets rid of all their religious dogma, that takes away all the fears of religion, that reintroduces love and peace and joy and kindness. Um, And looking at the stories, because the stories themselves are fascinating. And then bringing them down to the level of children between five and (laughs) nine-year-olds.
0: I love that. And I'm, I'm glad you reminded me to bring that up again. I, I have listened to at least one of your stories um, and they're really fascinating. Um, When you first, when you first came out with it, I was listening to it. I, you didn't know that I was, but I, I saw, Yeah. yeah. So you've taken these Bible stories that have been around for thousands of years. You've kind of repackaged it, updated the language a little bit and pulled some things out of it, put some things in, And you call it Dear Xavier. Why is that?
1: Well, I've called the series after my grandson, Dear Xavier. And I've so far written um, Adam and Eve, Blaming and Shaming. And there's a theme to each one of them. So that's about personal responsibility. And I introduced evolution there and science in in the story of Adam and Eve.
0: And it's really great because because of your um, wonderful reading voice anyway. So we have you reading them, and then they're also illustrated. So each new page has this new way of literally looking at the story, too. Did Who did the illustrations?
1: I did what I did. I sit, sat here and did these little videos.
0: Oh, if, Wait, so you made the illustrations, too? <laughs> no,
1: no, no. The illustrations I got off the internet. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I thought
0: you were about to tell me. I didn't know how to draw at all. So then I just drew all these paintings for this <laughs>
1: No, I go click and search.
0: Okay, okay, great. But they're you, so they're on YouTube. Anybody can watch them.
1: Yeah.
0: And it's a really great way to reimagine these stories. But um, oh,
1: it's so kind of you to say that.
0: Yeah, because, um, and I, I mean, I haven't listened to all of them, but I did listen to a few minutes of one of them. And I said, what a great idea.
1: The of the stories really irritated the hell out of me. Mm. Like, I couldn't stand what Abraham did to Isaac. And I couldn't stand... The story of Job, for me, was the worst thing ever. And I turned that into Job, uh, bullies, bullies are cruel, not cool. And it's about bullying and about teaching children how to deal with bullies.
0: There's a phrase that I love that one of my friends says, and it's, the um, the hardware is fine. The foundation... We just need to update the software. Yeah. You know? So the foundational moral codes of things the foundation of stories they still are relevant we just need to update them to our language yeah. i mean we were talking about language earlier there's mm. you have to speak the language that is understood for the time
1: absolutely you know well that's why with, with adam and eve i made her black
0: oh yeah perfect okay so let's listen to one of your stories that you've done this is um a remake of the famous David and Goliath story from the Bible. And you call it, uh, you call it David fighting fears. Let's listen to a clip.
1: Are you saying that we get to choose what we do with fear? Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. You can choose fear to empower you or defeat you. I don't always choose fear to empower me, David admitted. There are times when I am afraid like when I'm out walking my sheep and get too close to the edge of a cliff. I'm scared I'll fall off. That kind of fear is my way of warning you of the potential consequences. The other fear comes from the things we tell ourselves that make us afraid. Like the Israelites told themselves they could never beat Goliath. You told yourself that you would succeed. That's because I knew I could beat him with my sling, David replied. When people aren't blinded by fear... They are able to come up with creative ways of overcoming obstacles like you did. Everyone believed there was only one way to beat Goliath, with heavy armor and a sword. You made fear your friend by working with it, not giving into it, and came up with an ingenious plan. David nodded his head in agreement. Now that I am the hero of the Israelites, I have the responsibility to teach them how to become fearless warriors. I worry how best to train them, he confided. Help them understand that fear only lives in the past and the future. It never lives in the moment. And that's the only time that counts.
0: All right, so that's it. And you can listen to the whole thing on your YouTube channel, the whole uh, story of that. Speaking of fear and what we are thinking we're not getting, I think a lot of these arguments that we hear, or a lot of yelling and screaming and at each other is probably based around this idea of belonging, either not belonging to something or this desire to belong in some way. Yeah. You know, um, that is something that we all can have in common is to find in the same way how we belong. Even if it's just you and I both breathe the same air.
1: Yeah.
0: We're both under the same sky Mm. and then eventually the same planet. So, I hope that, in this same way that you and I have talked, that people can, at, in some way or someday, just have a conversation with someone of, in a subject they don't understand, and listen to each other and not speak past each other, and create language that they can both understand.
1: You know, I'm sure psychologists or psychiatrists one day will have will be able to um explain how so many people can believe the most insane bizarre things concepts i mean it's because it's i can't even fathom it you know how do you have a conversation with anybody when you there's no point of reference that you can start with
0: yeah in in many ways i know i know i just said that i hope we can have conversations um, but there's sometimes I don't think you can.
1: No. You know, this group of of um, these fascists in South Africa after apartheid, you know what they, what they did afterwards? They were given permission to have their own little territory, and it's minute, and they all live there together. Mm. Nobody sees them here. So and I think maybe that's what should happen to these people. I
0: think that's what they want.
1: Yeah, that's what they should get.
0: They want... Um... But they, I mean, but the same things are being said about, you know, they want let's round up all the liberals and put them in this whatever. And well,
1: I'm I'm so glad I live in California. Yeah. Nothing is us here. <laughs> uh,
0: yeah, it's um, but you know that is, in a in a broader sense too, our country is very young. I mean, we have we've had one war, in our total of our history. Yeah. Um, and I I think I've tweeted before that, um. We've already had our second war and it's a digital one. Yeah. Or it's happening now.
1: Mm.
0: You know, it's um misinformation and and that's when I earlier when I was talking about launching grenades, they're actually just digital ones. They're yeah. truth bombs yeah. or mystery. Yeah. bombs. Yeah. Um I think this ne- this next Civil War we're actually in it and it's a it's a digital one. Mm. And there's gonna be sides. And um, it's going to last a lot longer. And talking about winning and losing, I think you just, instead of winning and losing, I think you just have to make choices about what life path you want to take.
1: Don't you find that um, you're only, like, I can't stand, there's certain things I won't listen to. It's like, do you remember when reality shows started and each thing, it just became too much and it was awful and it was it was became obscene, and it, it it felt like smoking. Like I didn't want to pollute my lungs, my pink, wonderful, tender lungs with this black smoke. That's how I feel about mm. these conversations, and and listening to things that are so bizarre and and ridiculous. It's it's you know one of the things about being in a kitchen, you talk mm-hmm. about food. One of the lessons I learned is about how to be discerning. You know, choosing mm. which ingredients you're going to use. Yeah and that's about choosing
0: Good taste.
1: what you want what conversations you want to have you know everything in your life is about ingredients what you're choosing and those conversations is one that i'm not interested in choosing but mm. there
0: is there now i do find myself now being presented with those kinds of things and just skipping over it rather than being cuz i sometimes it still happens but sometimes i'll get pulled into this Vor- Twitter vortex or something and I just want to respond and, but then what I'm trying to do more of and most of the time I'm succeeding is to be mindful about what's happening mm. and that is first of all me responding is that what good is that going to do mm. if it actually is going to create change then I'll consider it if it's not it, all it does is just enrage me Yeah. then there's no, there's no point in even interacting yeah. and so I've Thank caught you. myself three times today yeah. About some person I don't even, don't even know, about yeah. some video in some other state, mm. with some action, and I knew that it was mm. to create a response from me. Yeah. And I started to type out something, and then realized oh. what I was doing and deleted it.
1: But how amazing is that? That's power.
0: Yeah, and so I find myself doing that more often, where I catch myself and like, nope, that's not, I'm not going to. That's not my circus yeah. to get into. Yeah. I told you that food is something that I do that to, to makes me feel alive. Yeah. And these are the things that I've been talking about um, with different people. Like I, I started to get into plants to kind of just oh. to literally be connected to the earth and living things. Yeah. And some of them have died, but that's fine too. Mm-hmm. Um, and also poetry has made me feel more human by ju- when I read out loud these poems it makes me, I make sure I do it before bed. And in the morning, it makes me come alive with these words that I'm speaking. And someone else told me it speaks to the, it was another episode, I think. Poetry, the reason poetry is so great is that it's kind of like reading a really great novel or watching a really great movie, but all compacted to the good parts. Yeah. So you're getting all of that information.
1: That's so, that's lovely. Yeah.
0: It's all right there. It's such goodness. Um, it's all—it's kind of like taking all the uh, richness of a chocolate cake in one bite, yeah, right?
1: Exactly. Oh, well, that's a wonderful analogy.
0: Yeah. So, things that make you feel alive: food, poetry, reading, writing.
1: And we'll just keep cooking and talking. Yes. And that's writing right. and creating. Exactly.
0: <laughs> well, Philippa, thank you so much for being on my show tonight.
1: Oh God, Justin, I'm so happy. I was. Thank you. I love,
0: love talking to you. It's so. We'll have to do it again for sure. And uh,
1: talk, phone me anytime. Doesn't have to be your podcast. We can just talk. Yeah. Anyway, I mean, okay? I
0: think you and I are still um, keep saying we have. Um, what do we say? We have uh, dreams of lying on a beach in a hazed state, <laughs> looking up at the stars. <laughs> <laughs> So we'll have to make uh, good on that promise at some point.
1: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That would be lovely.
0: All right. Thanks so much. And thanks okay, for being thank with you, me. Have lovely. a great night.
1: Thank you.